Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in African Studies podcast. I am your host today, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing, my honor, and my humble privilege to be in dialogue with Dr. Edward Kesey. He is Associate Professor in the Department of Africana Studies in the School of Interdisciplinary Global Studies at the University of South Florida, Tampa campus. We are here today to discuss his book, Africans and the Holocaust, Perceptions and Responses of Colonized and Sovereign Peoples, published in New York by Routledge Publishers 2020. Edward, uh, I could not be more grateful for your thoughtfulness and for your erudition. Thank you very much, Ari, and thank you also for uh, finding out, uh, you know, the book and then requesting that we have a conversation about it. Thank you. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? What formative events in your life catalyzed the scholar that you become as an adult? Where did you grow up? Can you tell us about some aspects of your earlier life? Sure, sure. Um, <clears throat> I come from Ghana. Uh, in West Africa, and that was where I was born, raised, and educated uh, from elementary school in the 1960s uh, through to university uh, in the 1980s. I was born to very poor parents uh, who worked on the land for a living. Uh, My father was a cocoa farmer uh, a cultivator and producer of a major cash crop uh, in Ghana in the 60s and 70s. And I mentioned that because unlike many, I did not grow up in a family where there was a library, where I could retire to that library after work on the farm Uh, to read about Shakespeare or Dickens or any uh, of the books that form the intellectual core and foundation of some of the people that I met uh, at college. Mine was a life on the farm. And so my uh, early upbringing was shaped by some of the native wisdom that my parents shared with me. I did not have a long-term aspiration of becoming a university professor. I did not even know what it was. I just wanted to live my life and then see where fate and fortune take me. But if there is anything that shaped my life, it was what my father used to tell me. My father used to say that in life, you must not build bridges until you get to a river that you really want to cross. 
So I didn't think about, okay, do I have to become a doctor? And how do I become a doctor? Do I want to become a lawyer? How do I become one? A professor, how do I become one? I thought that if the time and the opportunity came, I would think about it. What I wanted to do in my school life was to pass my exams. Because failure brought not only shame to myself, but also shame to the family. And so I worked very hard to pass my exams before I realized I was at the university. It was when I went to the University of Ghana in the 1980s that I realized maybe there might be some opportunities to become somebody. And uh, as I heard about people going to study abroad, that affected me emotionally. And I thought that maybe that might be a pathway. And so luckily I gained admission uh, in 1989 to come to Wilfrid Laurier University in Canada uh, to study for a master's degree in history. And that is where it all began. And then from there, I went to study with a very famous historian, Professor Frank Chalk at Concordia University Department of History. Uh, it was my parents, and Professor Frank Chalk, who actually molded the scholar that I have become. And it was through Professor Frank Chalk that I actually became interested in genocide and the Holocaust. Can you kindly summarize your book for us? It's very interesting. The book is about how people and governments, that is colonial subjects and colonial administrators in West and East Africa received and interpreted information about Nazism, the Second World War, and the German persecution and murder of European Jews in the lead up to the Holocaust and during the Holocaust itself. So that is just simply a summary of it. And if there are any other additional things that could be said about the book, it is that the book is an intellectual and diplomatic history of World War II and the Holocaust from the perspectives of the colonized subjects of the Gold Coast, present-day Ghana, Nigeria, Sierra Leone in West Africa, and Kenya, Tanganyika, present-day Tanzania, and Uganda in East Africa, and the sovereign nations of Liberia and Ethiopia who confronted the larger issues about humanity, racism, violence, genocide, and empathy that the Holocaust precipitated or raised. So that is what I deal with in the book. What, what inspired you to prepare this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? I was very surprised throughout my immersion in the study, the historical study of Africa and my post-1991 interest in the history of the Holocaust, I was very surprised that I didn't see much of the history of the Holocaust in African historiography. And I didn't see much about the voices of Africans in Holocaust historiography. Given the fact that more than a million African troops, including my great-granduncle, had fought in the Second World War on the side of the Allies, I wondered that perhaps the African troops who fought in the Second World War 
must have known what they were fighting for and would have left some traces in the historical record and some traces in African history about what they were fighting to uphold and the extent to which the Nazi destruction of European Jews fired their interest to participate in the war. I didn't see that. In none of the military histories of the Second World War did I find any mention of African views on the Holocaust. And so I thought these absences and silences in African history and Holocaust historiography offer me an opportunity to bring African history and Holocaust history into some mutual dialogue over what Africans knew and thought about the Holocaust and what they did to help the Jews who survived the Holocaust and ended up in Africa as refugees. So what fired my interest in preparing this book, doing the research to produce this book, was to integrate African voices into Holocaust historiography and then offer some Holocaust content in African, you know, integrate into African historiography perspectives of Africans in the Holocaust and then expand the existing frontiers of African and Holocaust histories. What aspects of your writing process were most challenging for you? How did you handle these adversities? What aspects of your writing process were most therapeutic for you? How did you grow? Hmm. It's very interesting in the sense that um, the writing process is very, very important in any art of research. You go to the archives, you collect as much information as you can, uh, whether they are from newspapers, whether they are from colonial archives. Like a fisherman, you bring all these fine aquatic materials to your house, your office. You've collected all the information from the archives as if you obtained them from the ocean. But when you bring them home, the challenge is to how to cook what you have brought. That is how to integrate into a coherent narrative what you have obtained from the archives. Mm -hmm. How do you plug the loopholes and the silences that you detected? What are some of the startling discoveries that you found that you can highlight in your writing? It is not an easy process. And mindful also of the fact that you want to write a book that will also be appreciated by non-academics. You are writing a book for humanity, including your own peers in the academy. So how do you simplify the complexities of the materials that you have assembled from the archives. How do you tell a story? Why are you writing this book? What are the broader lessons that you want this book to convey to humanity? It is the challenge of making sense of the complex art of research 
that actually challenged me because I had to find a better way of making sense of a very complex and gruesome story. So the central challenge was how to write a book that is very simple and straightforward and a book that bridges two historiographies that rarely talk to each other. Uh, and when I was able to have my first draft and then also obtain some feedback from the anonymous reviewers, it was at that time that the challenge of writing became very simple for me. And I began to realize that I have something that I can possibly be proud of someday. What is your book's contribution to the study of collective memory? Hmm. Well, um, an African perspective on the Holocaust is about the collective, is about the collective memory of Africans, about the gruesome development that took place outside, beyond their bodies. And so what I do in this book is assembling in one coherent chapter or set of chapters what people in Africa remembered about the Holocaust from the newspapers that they read and from the radio bulletins that they listened to in the 1930s and 1940s. And particularly in the African context, what I found was that the majority of Africans who read about the Holocaust, mainly the Western educated Africans in West Africa and East Africa, the majority of them collectively in their memories saw the Holocaust as the gruesome outcome of a mindset a way of thinking that also targeted them as Black Africans. The Nazi mindset, more racist mindset that denigrated the humanity of Jews and Africans. So from a collective memory perspective, educated Africans in these regions that I studied looked at the Holocaust as the outcome of racism and colonialism that has torched their own lives on the African continent. And they also saw in the Holocaust, or they saw from the Holocaust, or they used the Holocaust as an analytical lens from which they, they discussed civilization, colonialism, racism, barbarism, and human rights. That is the collective African memory of the Holocaust that I found in the archives that I have assembled in the book. Can you tell us about the rumors of Nigeria possibly being transferred to Nazi Germany? How realistic were these rumors? How did Nigerians feel about this? Can you put this proposal in context for us? Sure. I think one of the reasons why many in West Africa, including the Western educated Africans in Nigeria, paid particular attention to the Holocaust and what the Nazi regime was doing to the Jews, was that in the 1930s, 
people in Africa, particularly in Nigeria, read from their local newspapers, the West African pilot in particular, that British and French politicians and statesmen were discussing with the Nazi regime the possibilities of returning former German colonies to the Nazi government. And these were reports, and some of them were rumors in the 1930s and 1940s, that Britain and France intended to give back Cameroon, Togoland, Southwest Africa, uh, and Tanganyika back to the Nazi regime in order to promote peace in Europe. Now, these were rumors that were not idle. In fact, they were reported in the Manchester Daily Dispatch. They were also reported uh, in a, a newspaper that was produced in London at the time and read broadly, widely in East Africa, called East Africa and Rhodesia. Uh, there were also reports uh, in the Times of London. There were reports, uh, dispatches uh, that people in Nigeria read from Reuters that there was a pro-Nazi defense minister in South Africa called Oswald Piro. And the German, Germany's colonial claims were part of what was known in Africa as the Oswald Piro plan. This pro-Nazi defense minister in South Africa had proposed that Britain, France, and South Africa think seriously about appeasing the Nazi regime to leave Europe free, and then also that the Nazi regime will not entertain the idea of seeking Southwest Africa, present in Namibia, that South Africa wanted to keep as its pet colony. So the Oswald Piro plan was part of this broad Nazi colonial claim interest. And so these reports and rumors were rife in European newspapers. And they were reproduced not only in the West African pilot, but the Gold Coast Independent, the Gold Coast Spectator, and even as far afield as the Tanganyika Herald and the Uganda Herald, that European statesmen wanted to treat colonies and people for peace in Europe, and that it was Africans and African territories that would be used for this Faustian bargain. And so people were very apprehensive in West Africa that if these colonial transfer rumors were true, and if they materialized, then it is very likely that what the Nazi regime was doing to European Jews, they would do the same to African intellectuals. So in the Nigerian mind in the 1930s, regarding these colonial transfer rumors, the calculus was very simple. The Jews today, Nigerians and Africans tomorrow. Thank you for sharing. What is your book's contribution to African history and to the history of the Holocaust? First, 
as I already indicated, the book seeks to bridge two historiographies that rarely interact, African historiography and Holocaust historiography, and then bring both together in a mutual dialogue over what people in Africa knew and thought about the Holocaust and what forms of empathy and solidarity they expressed toward the Jewish victims of the Holocaust. So on that score, the book integrates African perspectives into Holocaust historiography. And by doing that, it expands and enriches Holocaust historiography by having a sub-Saharan African content in it. In terms of African historiography, much had been written even before my book was published about the African role in World War II. And there has been a lot of work done on the specific military accomplishments of African soldiers. What is missing in the military histories or African military histories, African military contributions to the Second World War was the extent to which the Holocaust inspired the African participation in World War II. And so what my book does is it plugs a loophole in the African historiography on the Second World War by integrating into it the role that the Nazi persecution of European Jews played in the interest of Africans to shed blood in dealing with the Nazi regime before the Nazi regime brought its anti-Black racism to the African continent. In that regard, my book provides a very important missing link that is beyond what we already know about why people in Africa participated in the Second World War. What specific role did the Holocaust play in that participation? My book addresses that. What my book also does in advancing our knowledge of African history and enriching African historiography is that it provides a way for Africanists to understand how the Holocaust was used by African intellectuals to critique colonialism and racism. Given the fact that they saw racism that they suffered and Nazi anti-Semitism as bad fellows in the same spectrum of prejudice. What my book does is it shows how the Holocaust provided moral legitimacy to the critique of colonialism and racism on the African continent. It does a whole lot of things, perhaps even more important. It also shows how the Holocaust allowed Africans on the continent to question the promise 
of European colonization and Christianity. Can you tell us about the proposal to resettle Jewish refugees from the Holocaust in Ethiopia? What became of this idea? What did Haile Selassie feel about this idea? How did Ethiopians locally feel about this idea? Hmm. That's a very excellent question. Uh, and one that needs some very, very important context before one even comes to how the Ethiopian project fared and what Haile Selassie is reported to have thought about it. The interest in resettling Jewish victims of Nazism and the Holocaust predates the outbreak of World War II. In fact, as far back as 1903, the British government had interest in resettling victims of Jewish victims of Russian pogroms in a small town in Russia called Kishinev that some very abhorrent massacres of Jews had taken place in Kishinev in 1903. And the British government decided that it would resettle Jews who were victims of these recurrent pogroms in Kenya. Now, the initial Kenya resettlement effort fizzled out because British settlers in Kenya rebuffed the idea. It is a very long conversation that we can get into. But since your question is specifically about Ethiopia, I just want to give that context and pivot to the Ethiopian project. Ethiopia was one of the many places that the British government contemplated settling Jewish refugees. So when the Kenya effort hit a snag because British settlers and British Protestant Christians in Kenya did not want poor whites or poor Jews from Romania and Russia and Poland to come to a colony that they wanted to make the citadel of, you know, white British civilization project. Ethiopia became the next Zion that the British government contemplated. You remember that when the Italians invaded Ethiopia in 1935, Britain was very helpful in getting Haile Selassie off to London for a very brief period in 1941. While Haile Selassie was there, the British government discussed the possibility of settling a number of Jewish refugees from Germany and Austria in Ethiopia. And besides the British government effort, there were also some private individuals who were also assisting that effort, Dr. Jack Svetlovich and then others. The initial intention was to settle large numbers of Jewish refugees from Austria, Germany, Poland, Romania, and Russia in Ethiopia particularly in the Harar province of Ethiopia. And then in the Gonda province where large numbers of Ethiopian Jews live. Uh, the Ethiopian 
project did not materialize because Haile Selassie and top officials of the Imperial Ethiopian government balked at the idea of alienating large tracts of land for Jewish settlement. They felt that it might eventually lead to the colonization of parts of Ethiopia by European Jews. And that idea did not sit very well with the emperor. And of course, the British government did not push the emperor too hard on this because Ethiopia was a sovereign African nation that had experienced Italian colonization and the British government was very sensitive in pushing this particular resettlement policy on Haile Selassie. Who was Jacques Fetlovich? Why is he a person of prominence? Can you tell us about his biography and his legacy? It's very interesting. There isn't much on Dr. Jacques Fetlovich. And if there are any sequels to my work, that ought to be produced by young researchers. It is perhaps a biographical study of Dr. Jacques Fetlovich. Jacques Fetlovich was a Jewish philanthropist who had lived in Ethiopia for a very long time. There isn't much on him about when he began uh, his residence in Ethiopia. But the little that I was able to gather from the archives suggests that he had been living in Ethiopia as early as the 1920s and knew a good number of Ethiopian aristocrats directly. In fact, he had the emperor's ear. Now, Fetlovich is a very important character in the entire story of the British effort and other private efforts to settle German and Austrian Jews who were fleeing the Holocaust in Ethiopia. Jacques Fetlovich claimed in his writings to the Foreign Office and the British Colonial Office that he had reached some specific agreement with elders and chieftains and very important personalities in Gunda, where majority of Ethiopian Jews live. So Fetlovich argued to the British Foreign Office that he has obtained the consent of majority of Ethiopian Jewish leaders to settle a large number of Jewish professionals, technicians, engineers, doctors, in the Gonda region of Ethiopia, and then create an autonomous Jewish state in the Gonda region. And that the emperor had agreed in principle that such a project might be entertained by the imperial Ethiopian government. That is what Jacques Fetlovich claimed. But eventually, uh, the head of the British legations, like the British embassy, initial uh, construct of it, R.G. Howe, eventually convinced the British Foreign Office and the Colonial Office that that was Jacques Fetlovich's pet uplift project. 
the idea that Fetlovich could obtain large tracts of land in the areas where the Ethiopian Jews live, where there are complicated land tenure systems, was actually a figment of Jack Fetlovich's own imagination. And that the British government should not consider that seriously. And so whether Fetlovich's idea had any serious foundation was actually eventually nipped in the bud by R.G. Howe, uh, who was the head of the British legation uh, in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, uh, by April 1943. What does your book teach us about the history of journalism in Africa? Excellent point. Well, I would say that the majority of my sources that I use from the, for this book uh, comes from newspapers. And if journalism had not developed to a very, very high level by the 1930s, I probably would not have secured the rich newspaper sources that I obtained. It appears from my sources that educated Africans in the two regions that I study took journalism very, very seriously. Not only did they see the press, newspapers in particular, as media for communicating major world events to the larger educated population. In fact, some of the newspapers were even produced in local West African languages. That is how developed journalism was. Journalism transcended its main locus of transmission, the English language. And then it also uh, found space in local languages. And what is interesting is that these newspapers written by African journalists obtained some of their information from foreign sources, Russian newspaper sources translated into English, news sources from Sweden, Reuters cables, British press sources. French sources, Le Figaro, Le Jour, and then others. And so journalism in Africa, West Africa, and even East Africa, benefited immensely from foreign sources as well. So it would seem that African journalists did their work very well by obtaining reinforcements from foreign sources. In fact, without foreign sources, they could not have written about the rumors and reports about the possible transfer of Nigeria and then the Gurkhus and other colonial territories to the Nazi state. And one last thing that perhaps can be said about the development of journalism at this period of the Holocaust was that the journalists knew how to write. I mean, some of the editorials are so well written that you look at journalism of the 1930s 
and you look at journalism today and you might want to weep about the decline of journalistic standards. I couldn't agree more. Who was Nana Afori Atta? Can you elaborate on this person? Nana Uforiata was a very prominent chief in the Gold Coast, present-day Ghana. Uh, he was a very prominent paramount chief of Achim Abuakwa uh, in the eastern region uh, of present-day Ghana. He was a very, very influential chieftain, very well-educated. Uh, according to some biographical sources, uh, he obtained part of his, his education uh, from British uh, schools. And so even though he was a traditional leader, he was also very well educated. Uh, and Uforiata was a member of the Legislative Council, the Gold Coast Legislative Council. The Legislative Council was a body of Europeans, mainly British, and educated Africans and traditional African leaders brought together to provide advice to the colonial governor. Of course, the colonial governor was not bound to accept the advice of the legislative council, but Uforiata was part of the legislative council. And Uforiata was very, very influential in the sense that he was one of the major voices in the Gold Coast that actually appealed to very skeptical Gold Coast people about the need for them to take World War II seriously and do the best they can to assist the Allied war effort. So uh, Uforiata was a major voice and a force for good uh, immobilizing large numbers of his own people and mobilizing opinion in the Gold Coast towards the Allied war effort in the Second World War. He was also very, very instrumental in telling his people and the majority of people in the Gold Coast that if they did not pay serious attention to the Allied war effort and participate in any way that they could, in the event of a Nazi victory in World War II, the fate of Africans, particularly in the Gold Coast, could probably be worse than the fate of Jews in Europe. And Uforiata was uh, one person who made many people in the Gold Coast see what could possibly happen to them through what was happening to the Jews of Europe. So he was a very, very influential person in the 1930s. Who was Hans Masakoi and who was Momolu Masakoi? Can you describe their importance? Hans Masakoi or Masakoi uh, was the grandchild of Momolu Masakoi. Momolu Masakoi was the first was the the consul Liberia's consul general in Germany in the 1930s uh, he was the first official representative of a sovereign 
African country uh, in Europe. The first African representative uh, in, 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 in Germany at the time. In fact, Germany, uh, Liberia uh, established diplomatic relations with Germany in June 1922. And Momolu Masakoi was the first Liberian diplomat, a consul in Hamburg, uh, who was representing Liberia's uh, commercial and political interests. Masakoi was the Hans Masakoi was the grandson uh, of Momolu Masakoi. And Hans Masakoi is very, very important in the sense that he gives us the first and perhaps most insightful African perspective on the Holocaust. I must say that his work, Witness to the Holocaust, uh, was one of the main inspirations behind my own book, Africans and the Holocaust. Hans Masakoa wrote about the indignities that Africans and Jews suffered from the 19, uh, you know, in the 1930s and 1940s. He offers us very vivid accounts of the racial obsessions of the Nazi state, uh, the racisms that he encountered as a young Afro-German himself, uh, the playgrounds that he could not visit with his white friends because he was a non-Aryan. Uh, even though he was interested in joining the Nazi youth as an Afro-German, he couldn't because he was considered as the quintessential problem that the Nazi regime wanted to eliminate. An African born uh, from an interracial relationship between his African father and his white mother. And so Hans, Hans, Hans Masakoi gives us uh, a very insightful yet sad summary uh, of Nazi Germany that he witnessed when he was growing up. What kinds of sources did you draw upon in your research? What obstacles did you encounter in using them? Excellent question. I think I have already alluded to some. Yes, you did. Primarily newspapers uh, published in the 1930s in East and West Africa, namely the Uganda Herald, the Tanganyika Herald, the Ethiopia Herald. Don't ask me about the African fascination with the Herald as the name for newspapers. I have no clue. Nevertheless, uh, these were some of the newspapers in, uh, in East Africa that I used. And then of course, the uh, East, East Africa and Rhodesia, the East African standard. And then in West Africa, I drew upon the Daily Guardian from Sierra Leone, uh, the Gold Coast Independent, the Gold Coast Spectator, the Ashanti Pioneer, the West African Pilot, uh, the African Nationalist in Liberia, uh, the Liberian Crisis in Liberia, uh, edited by ZBH Roberts, uh, so newspapers 
formed a very important part uh, of the sources for this book. But beyond newspapers, I also use colonial records. Um, I uh, did a lot of research uh, in the public record office in London uh, and obtained very, very important foreign office and colonial office records. I also visited uh, the British newspaper library in Collindale uh, in the UK and then drew upon uh, British newspapers uh, that uh, published information about what was happening to the Jews in Nazi Germany, uh, information upon which African newspapers drew. Uh, so colonial records and African newspapers form the core sources for this work. Now, sources that I was not able to get, that I would have liked to obtain. And what should concern some future researchers who want to explore some of the issues that I was not able to tackle adequately. That collection of sources that I did not get is Ethiopian diplomatic records. I was in Ethiopia uh, as part of my you know, almost five to six years research visit mm -hmm. uh, to Ghana, uh, Liberia, Ethiopia, Washington, D.C., the Holocaust Museum, these places where I collected my sources. But I could not get access to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs records in Addis Ababa. Mm. I tried the best that I could. I was not allowed access to them. And why was I obsessed, perhaps for want of a better word, mm -hmm. about the Ethiopian archives? Mm -hmm. I was obsessed about it because it had the potential of addressing some key questions for me. First, why was Ethiopia so silent about its critique of Nazism? compared to the incessant criticisms of the Nazi state that I found in East African newspapers and West African newspapers. Mm -hmm. Why was the Liberian government so critical of the Nazi regime, one of the only two sovereign nations in Africa? whose perspectives on the Holocaust I was interested in too, Liberia and Ethiopia. Why was Liberia so critical of Nazi Germany? But why don't we have Ethiopia and Haile Selassie's critical perspective on Nazism? I wanted to find out what kind of correspondence was going on between the Ethiopian Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Third Reich. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I wanted to find out what specific arrangements were made between the Third Reich and the Ethiopian government to obtain out of Hitler's military support 
for dealing with the Italian invasion of Ethiopia in October 1935. Because I had obtained some limited information that Adolf Hitler's regime helped secretly the Ethiopian government in its repulsion uh, of the Italian invasion. I mean, they, they tried to repel it as much as they can. But given the fact that they didn't have sufficient armaments, I had some indication from some diplomats that I spoke to that Germany was very helpful to Ethiopia in these critical years of the Italian invasion and occupation of Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. I wanted to find out from Ethiopian records what was going on. Third obsession. And I think it's something that uh, you have already asked me about Dr. Fetlovich's interest in settling European Jews and among the Ethiopian Jews in the Gonda region. And Haile Selassie's ambiguous reactions to it. I would have liked to find from the Ethiopian archives, particularly diplomatic records, what was going on between the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Ethiopia and the British Foreign Office and the British Colonial Office about all these British plans and then the private efforts by Jack Fetlovich and also uh, an obscure organization from New York called the American Organization or the American Association to Establish an Autonomous Jewish State in the Harar province. That what were the kinds of diplomatic exchanges that were going on between Addis Ababa and New York, mm -hmm. Addis Ababa and London, Addis Ababa and then uh, Berlin over the Holocaust and then the possible resettlement of some European Jews in Ethiopia. I mm. wish I had my hands on some of these diplomatic records. That was one of the challenges that faced me in my research. How does your book advance our understanding of genocide? Excellent point. Um, it does in the sense that it clearly indicates that genocide is an incremental process. It's not something that happens spontaneously. What the Nazis were doing to European Jews constituted a genocide. Nazi treatment of the Jews of Germany and other parts of Europe betrayed the intent of the Nazi state not only to persecute the Jewish victims of these Nazi atrocities, but also to completely wipe them from the face of the earth. And this Nazi intent to destroy European Jews included persecutions, murder, and then also other legislative harassments like the Nuremberg laws of November of September 1935, laws passed in Germany barring uh, intermarriages between Jews and Germans intended to slow down the reproductive capacities of Jews. So all these are features of genocide. And what my book spells out 
is that all these acts were part of the Nazi intent. And they began almost at the time when the Nazi regime consolidated itself from 1933 to its demise in 1945. What the book tells us about genocide is genocide begins incrementally, slowly. It is a process. And if we want to trace it, we can open our eyes to see what states and governments are doing to particular target groups. What it also does is that it notes that genocide is not only a state-organized crime, it is a society-condoned atrocity as well. After all, had many people in Germany protested what the Nazi regime was doing in its name, perhaps the Nazi regime could not have proceeded obsessively as it did against German Jews, uh, Roma and Sinti groups, and then other groups of people who were caught in the throes of Nazi violence. And so the state leads and society follows and acquiesces in this catastrophic process that is called genocide. So my book lays that out clearly. And what it also does is that it shows how aware people in Africa were of the various faces of the Nazi genocide against European Jews. Because African journalists chronicled these various faces and transitions from persecution to physical annihilation and then use that as conceptual and analytical lens for criticizing civilization that Europeans promised, for pointing to Europeans that Africa is not a museum of barbarism, as European colonial officials had claimed, and that the Holocaust represented one of the greatest manifestations of European barbarism too. So that is the contribution that my book makes to understanding the complexities of the genocidal process. What did Hitler say about Jews and Africans in Mein Kampf? Why did he hold these sentiments? Hmm. Well, the simplest answer is that Hitler was a racist. And Mein Kampf is an assembly of racism. It is a catalog of Hitler's own personal racist ideas. As you very well know, Hitler had written Mein Kampf in the 1920s. And he assembles in Mein Kampf his own pet ideas about how Germany can be revived and renewed following Germany's loss of the First World War and Germany's experience of depression in the 1930s and other economic catastrophes. 
not least of which, other social catastrophes, not least of which, uh, was the occupation of the Rhineland, the industrial heartland of Germany by France and the French government bringing Senegalese troops from West Africa to police or protect the Rhineland from German takeover. And Hitler came to believe, not that there were any serious truth to it, that Germany did not lose the war, but that Germany was stabbed in the back by Jewish financiers who wanted the stabilization of global markets that they thought the First World War um, destabilized. Uh, and that the by virtue of the fact that a majority of Jews were intellectuals, some of the finest thinkers in Germany's academies, by virtue of their intellect and their intellection, that they are very artful in their argument formation. I mean, Hitler himself was an anti-intellectual, so that is to be understood. And so he had this idea that Jews as intellectuals uh, have the ability uh, to make certain arguments that he cannot make. And that as believers in Marxist ideas, that the Jews had advocated human rights and equality. And therefore, Jewish ideas, Jewish Marxist ideas represented the greatest existential threat to Nazi racism and aristocratic privileges. And all these, at least, have been proven to be intellectually vacuous and sterile. So they must not be taken seriously. But it was not only the Jews that Hitler was obsessed with. He was also obsessed about Africans, Black Africans in particular. And the only two people, groups of people, who coming for particular denigration and criticism in Mein Kampf are Jews and Africans. Hitler believed that Africans are subhuman. Uh, they are half apes or anthropoid by birth. That's his ideas. And that it was even a waste of time for European missionaries and colonial authorities to educate Africans. And the idea that there is an African intellectual, Hitler believed, was just simply a sin against nature and a sin against civilization. And so two people that he considered to be the opposite of what Germany needed to become, Jews and Africans. And because he considered Jews and Africans as subhuman and inferior in blood, Hitler's mind kind of spelled out certain noxious ideas about the possible contamination of the Aryan genetic pool by Jews and Africans if Jews and Africans had to marry German women. And so these are the kinds of obsessive caricatures of Jews and Africans that one finds in Mayan Can you describe the history of the idea of Kenya as a quote-unquote Zion for Jewish refugees? What became of this idea? Well, the idea of a Zion, um, a, a lot of uh, Jewish immigrants in Europe, like the Zionist movement, uh, 
you know, dating back to the Balfour Declaration of 1917, sought, had a vision, an aspiration, if you like, that someday, because of the virulence of anti-Semitism in Europe, that a permanent home for Jews must be found somewhere. The initial idea was to settle Jews who wanted to leave Europe as a result of the anti-Semitic fervor in Europe, that Jews who wanted to leave Europe could actually settle in Palestine. But the Palestine idea was the ultimate one. And there were certainly problems in actually getting it to happen as speedily as those who subscribe to that idea wanted it to happen. And therefore, a midway to that ultimate objective, a Zion in Africa was contemplated. That if the ultimate objective, the ultimate um, answer to anti-Semitism was creating a permanent Jewish home in Palestine, then an interim way of accomplishing that may be to establish a Jewish home, if not permanent, at least a temporary Jewish home somewhere in Africa. There were various areas that were initially contemplated. Uganda was one. Northern Rhodesia, uh, present-day Zambia was another. Uh, in fact, Nyasaland, Malawi, was another. And then Kenya, Tanganyika, present-day Tanzania. And then, of course, Ethiopia, as we have already discussed. So these African Zions, or these transitions to the ultimate objective, uh, were contemplated initially. And uh, as I noted in my discussion of how it failed in Kenya, British settlers did not want poor Jews from Eastern Europe to come to a place in Kenya that they wanted to monopolize. They did not think that they would want to share land with Jews who wanted to settle there. And perhaps importantly, they felt that poor Jews would undermine the prestige of whiteness that the British settlers in Kenya wanted to uphold. The reason why the Zion effort also failed in Ethiopia, I have already um, addressed part of that. Uh, Britain did not want to force that upon Haile Selassie. It would have represented some type of colonial project that Britain did not want to endorse. And then also Haile Selassie and key Ethiopian officials were not interested in the idea in the first place because all boiled down to how to apportion land for the settlement of the number of European Jews who might want to come to Africa to settle. That was that African Zion project. And what actually torpedoed it was just simply 
fear of complicating the land, the already complicated land tenure systems in Ethiopia and other parts of the African continent. How did Jewish refugees adapt to life in Uganda and Tanganyika? How did locals perceive them and treat them? How did they cope with the difference in climate? What forms of disease did they succumb to? What forms of medical assistance was available to them? Very good. I think that Tanganyika and Uganda offer perhaps the most heartwarming alternative to the sad realities of the Jewish refugee settlement idea that didn't really pan out in Kenya and Ethiopia. And then even in the Gold Coast, my own country in Ghana. Tanganyika and Uganda are perhaps the best expression of a successful, although short-lived, resettlement experience. In fact, it is difficult to know how many Jews actually settled in Tanganyika and Uganda. Now, the numbers are very confusing, but conservatively, one can argue that close to about 5,000 Jews from Poland, from Romania, from Russia, and to a limited extent, Germany and Austria settled in Tanganyika around 1942, 1943, 1944. And then about 3,000 to 4,000 settled in Uganda around the same time. And what is interesting in these two areas was that the local people actually helped them. While in other places, local Africans seemed concerned about land tenure and land alienation. In Tanganyika, that was not the case. In fact, the people in Tanganyika openly welcomed the few Jewish refugees who made their way from Russia uh, through Siberia, Kazakhstan, Iraq, Iran, and India, and Kenya. It's right from Europe through all these areas ending up in Tanganyika or Tanzania today in the early 1940s. Some of them initially lived in hotels, but then later land was made available to them. Local people helped to make gardens for them. And according to the records that exist, some of which I was able to uh, look at, the Polish refugees, particularly Polish refugee women and children, were really very happy in, Tang in Tangaika because of the empathetic attitude of the local people. Our local people helped them, local people taught them the languages, uh, and they found some momentary respite from the irritations of life in Poland and other places where they had endured prejudice and oppression. The same story can be told about Uganda. Their local people also helped them. In fact, the Uganda Herald in September 1942, December 1943, had a series of adverts in the newspaper 
calling upon Ugandans to bring anything that they could find their hands on. Knitting equipment, toys, magazines, shoes, hats, mirrors, combs, food, and transistor radios that they could bring to the Polish refugees who had arrived in Uganda and who had received land and small huts and settlements built with the help of local people. And the Uganda Herald made it very clear that these Polish Jews had endured a lot of hardships that Ugandans had been spared and that in the name of empathy and humanity, that the people of Uganda should bear their hearts to the Polish refugees, and they did. Now, of course, the story of the Jewish refugees settlement in Tanganyika and Uganda is not a, a litany of good stories. In fact, many of the Jews arrived in Uganda and Poland uh, with a wide range of debilitating diseases, trachoma, tuberculosis, um, dental diseases, and a form of illness that in the records is described as nervous irritability. Of course, a lot of you know, conflicts uh, broke out uh, within the refugee camps uh, in Tangaika and Uganda. But the main diseases that the Polish Jews suffered in these two areas, malaria, some depict from the uh, malarial conditions in Tanzania and Uganda. But the records also indicate some that some arrived with, um, you know, malaria, you know, suffering from malaria, you know, in transit from the various areas that they passed through before they got to East Africa. Uh, but these diseases were catered to by Polish doctors and nurses uh, who were available in the camps uh, and who provided medical services as rudimentary as those medical services were uh, to the Polish, Romanian, uh, and then Russian refugees who were in these camps. But predominantly, the Jewish refugees who were in the Tanzanian and the Ugandan camps were Jewish refugee, Polish Jewish refugee women and children. What was the Gold Coast Executive Council? Why is it notable? Hmm. The Gold Coast Executive Council, I mean, the Gold Coast is present-day Ghana uh, until you know, 6 March 1957, when Gold Coast became independent and then changed the name from the Gold Coast to Ghana. Uh, that was what Ghana was called, the Gold Coast. The Executive Council is a small body, about six to 10 of European officials who advised the British governor on policy, on colonial policy. And so the executive, executive council is very, very important in the sense that it was a body made up of like-minded British officers who administered the Gold Coast colony. And it was the executive council that harbored 
some of the anti-Jewish prejudices that I found in West Africa. So when it came to the settlement of Jewish refugees in Africa, besides local concerns about land, Tanganyika and Uganda as exceptions to this general concern, the most rabid anti-Semites in Africa were British officials, British settlers in Kenya, but in the Gold Coast, members of the Executive Council, the European members of the Executive Council were those who were opposed to even requests from the colonial office that a small number of Jewish refugees be allowed to settle in the Gold Coast. Mainly Jewish doctors and Jewish technicians and Jewish laboratory workers. So that is what the executive council meant and the kinds of sentiments that it harbored. Uh, there are other sentiments that it harbored, but uh, if you want me to talk about it, I'll be happy to do that. Sure, I would be grateful. Sure, sure. So in 1938, the British Colonial Office sends a letter to the Gold Coast Executive Council requesting that large numbers of Jews are stranded in British consular offices in Europe asking for visas to enter Britain. And the British Foreign Office and Home Offices were also concerned that the influx of Jews might revive latent anti-Semitism in Britain. Therefore, to alleviate the concerns that British Home Office, Foreign Office, and Colonial Office officials had, ideas were generated about the possibility of having the Jews who wanted to come to Britain go to settle in the Dominions. And the Dominions, as you well know, were South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. The Dominions appear to have expressed disinterest in the settlement of Jews in these areas for some of the usual stereotypical reasons. Reasons that Jews are the wrong type of immigrants who shun assimilation into local societies. Or the Jews harbor revolutionary Marxist ideas and therefore they might unsettle existing social structures in the host countries. And so the Dominions were reluctant to accept Jews. And so the only alternative was the colonies. And the Gold Coast became part of the Zions, the many African Zions considered. Now, because of the tropical nature of the Gold Coast, not many Jews, uh, uh, not, the colonial office did not envision the settlement of large numbers of Jews in the Gold Coast. But even the few that the colonial office asked the Gold Coast Executive Council to consider accepting, the Gold Coast Executive Council refused. One, because they claimed that Jews might impede the rapid conversion of Africans in the Gold Coast into Protestant Christianity. Two, that if Jews were accepted to come to the Gold Coast to practice medicine, 
that it might impede the rapid establishment of what the British had contemplated, a West African school of medicine. And three, that if Jewish doctors were admitted into the Gold Coast colony, the Gold Coast Executive Council would have to amend the medical and dental ordinance, the law that outlined the specific qualifications that medical practitioners ought to have before practicing the colony, in the colony. That if Jews were coming in some numbers to the Gold Coast, then the Gold Coast Executive Council would have to change the Gold Coast immigration laws and amend the medical and dental ordinances in order to allow Jews who hold qualifications and diplomas that are not accepted by Britain. They will be coming in with foreign diplomas that will undermine the kind of standards that the executive council thought it wanted to maintain. In other words, by admitting Jews into the colony, the executive council will be lowering the standards for medical practice in the colonies. That was the stance of the Gold Coast Executive Council. Wow. And we do not know how many Jews would have been saved from Auschwitz, Dachau, Buchenwald, and other places if British colonial authorities in these parts of Africa had been humane enough to accede, at least accept, the request of the colonial and foreign offices to change their immigration laws to allow Jews to settle. But again, as the history of the Holocaust tells us, it was not only in Africa where this reluctance to change immigration laws to allow Jews fleeing the Holocaust to settle existed. Can you kindly elaborate on the spectrum of opinion among colonized Africans regarding Jewish refugees' potential resettlement in their countries? Hmm. Well, I have already addressed some of them, certainly. Mm -hmm. Those opinions that I have addressed or have discussed cannot be considered to be representative of the African opinion. And I think that is where much research needs to be done. And you mentioned earlier about collective memory. What was the collective memory of Africans about the propriety and necessity of admitting Jewish refugees onto the alliance. The spectrum of opinion that I have been able to dredge up is that while educated Africans and even less educated Africans wax, waxed philosophical and moral about what Nazi Germany was doing to the Jews of Europe, they were not particularly eager to accept Jewish refugees onto their lands. Um, they were comfortable writing editorials about 
the evil nature of the Nazi regime and then how what was happening to the Jews mirrored what could potentially happen to them in the event that their own territories came under Nazi Germany in the event of a Nazi victory in World War II. So they universalized the Holocaust. They waxed moral about the Holocaust. But there isn't much in the archives. Maybe I did not see them. There isn't much there about a spectrum of opinion, a collective memory of educated Africans about the propriety of certain large numbers of Jews fleeing from the Holocaust in Africa. And that is what I call the contradictions of African empathy towards the Jews at this time. Let us not forget the exceptions that I have already teased out, Tanganyika and Uganda. There we see the willingness to admit Jewish refugees and local efforts to help them. Uh, and so the spectrum of opinion uh, in summary is that Jewish refugees were not entirely welcome, uh, but their plight raised fundamental questions about European claims to civilization and moral superiority over Africans. As far as having an intellectual conversation about the Holocaust, yes. But in terms of a practical consideration of Jews as an integral part of some African societies because of land issues, that I have not seen. But one additional point that I think I can raise in response to the question that you have raised about the spectrum of opinion is that in West Africa in particular, and more research uh, ought to be done about this, is that besides obsession with land, and it seems to be a general concern, historical memory appear to have swayed local opinion against the settlement of large numbers of Jews in West Africa, particularly the Gold Coast, and to some extent, Nigeria. And that is memory about Syrians and Lebanese who had settled in West Africa after 1914. By the 1930s and 1940s, a significant number of Syrians and Lebanese had made the Gold Coast and Nigeria their home. They had become a foreign diasporic community in these regions, in this, in this particular region of Africa, West Africa. And local people did not like the Lebanese and Syrians. It appears that they criticized their business practices and they bewailed the fact that the Syrians and Lebanese had gotten too cozy with the colonial administrations. And therefore, a new wave of immigrants from Europe i.e. Jews, who would come to create an alternative diasporic enclave in West Africa, was something that local people, even including West African educated elites, did not consider to be something they could support. What are the differences between speaking of Africa and the Holocaust versus Africans and the Holocaust? What are the consequences of the two terminologies? That is a very excellent question. 
It borders on conceptual and analytical distinctions. Some would say that there isn't really much difference. I tend to see one. When we talk about Africa, the land, the continent, the space, and as an event, a process, a crime, a catastrophe, Africa and the Holocaust will seem to be a study of the Holocaust reach into African lands. If I Robert Sutliff, uh, in his book, um, Among the Righteous, mm -hmm. examines what I would call the Africa and the Holocaust conceptual niche. And that is how the Holocaust reached Africa in some sense, in the following senses. One, Satlov argues that the Nazi regime extended to North Africa, Tunisia, Algeria, and Libya, the anti-Semitic feelings that the Nazi regime harbored and then brought those anti-Semitic feelings and then used them to persecute North African Jews. So here we see Africa, the land, and then how Africa experienced aspects of the Holocaust. From my perspective, Africa and the Holocaust, as I see it, and I document bits and pieces of that, is how the Nazi regime extended the enforcement of the Nuremberg laws of September 1935 to East Africa. In fact, after November 1935, a German consul in Nairobi, Kenya, sent notification to the almost 1,290 Jews who lived in East Africa, instructing them to obey the Nuremberg laws that had been passed in Germany. That is Africa and the Holocaust. That is how Africa experienced aspects and features of the Holocaust. Not only the extension of the enforcement of the Nuremberg laws of September 1935 to African soil, but there was also a similar notification sent to all Jews living in East Africa to pay their part of a fine that the Nazi government had imposed on all Jews in Germany following the assassination of the German diplomat in Paris, Ernest von Rath, on the 7th of November, 1938, by a Polish Jewish student, Herschel Greenspan. And so to the extent that the Nazi state thought that Jews living in East Africa are Jews living in an overseas extension of the Third Reich. They thought it would be appropriate to apply Nazi German laws to a part of African territory. When we look at Africa and the Holocaust, we are looking at such extensions of Nazism and such extensions of aspects of the Holocaust to African soil. That to me is very different from what I do in my book, Africans and the Holocaust. Africans and the Holocaust is about reactions of people. 
not necessarily reflections of Holocaust history and Holocaust legislations on African soil, but how people in Africa viewed and interpreted the Holocaust. So Africans and the Holocaust in terms of its conceptual distinction, Africans and the Holocaust is about a catalog of responses and reactions and feelings and ideas that people express about the Holocaust as opposed or as different, different uh, from aspects of the Holocaust or the extension of Holocaust legislation to African soil. What does your book teach us about the nature of propaganda and its reception in various parts of Africa during the Second World War? Mm, excellent. Well, some propaganda was accepted, even embraced. Some was looked upon with skepticism. A key propaganda that many in Africa, particularly the regions that I look at, had to contend with was the British propaganda that if the Nazi regime is doing this to Jews with whom Nazi Germans share skin color, racial identity, even history, Imagine what the Nazi regime would do to you, Africans. If you do not help us win this war against Nazi Germany, and Nazi Germany wins the war, and you might want to contemplate your fate in a world controlled by the Nazi regime. It was a kind of anti-Nazi propaganda that had some kernel of truth for Africans. They were writing about what the Nazis were doing to the Jews, and they saw that propaganda, even though propagated by the British government, as something that had some modicum of truth. And it was the nature of propaganda that was designed by British colonial authorities to actually get a healthy African perspective or involvement in World War II. And that succeeded. It was an ingenious propaganda that Africans attached some truth to it that succeeded in getting Ufuriata and then others to argue that the Nazi regime would be particularly dangerous to us Africans, just as they have been dangerous to Jews. So that particular propaganda raised the issue that just as the Holocaust posed a physical threat to European Jews, it was also an important warning to Africans. That aspect of British propaganda really succeeded. The aspect of British propaganda that did not succeed in Africa was the British effort to argue that what was happening in Nazi Germany was a distinctively European, was a distinctively German act. That this is something that can only be associated with Germany and its Nazi regime. The Holocaust and all the atrocities and the persecutions and the murders had nothing to do with Europeans. It has everything to do with Nazi Germany. And therefore, Africans must separate 
Nazi German anti-Jewish atrocities from anti-African racism that the British themselves were perpetrating in their colonies. The Africans did not buy that kind of propaganda. They saw the Holocaust as a manifestation, the gruesome manifestation, a different kind of outcome from the same European racism and colonialism that they were experiencing. That the Holocaust was just part of a spectrum of prejudice and violence that are typical of European mindsets. And the British cannot be excluded from the Germans in this particular scenario. And so people in Africa, particularly the educated elites who interpreted the Holocaust from the prism of their own historical experiences, associated the Holocaust with European behavior, European racism, and European colonialism. And efforts by the British government to detach the Holocaust from colonial racism was something that did not succeed in how Africans interpreted the Holocaust. Who were the most important Africans to draw parallels between colonial atrocities in Africa and Nazi behavior? The educated elite, primarily. Mm -hmm. The educated elite. Um, in West Africa, the editor of the West African pilot, Namdi Azikiwe, uh, who became the first president of Nigeria in the 1960s. Um, Uforiata, uh, whom you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. a traditional West African leader, but also very well educated. And his nephew, who was a prominent barrister, a lawyer in the Gold Coast, Dr. J.B. Dankwa, also made similar associations between Nazism and colonialism and racism, and even Nazism and slavery. And of course, part of British propaganda was also that where the Nazi regime would enslave you just as it is enslaving Germans and Polish Jews, German Jews and Polish Jews. But of course, the educated elite did not buy that slavery argument, even though they viewed it as possible. Because, of course, they themselves and their uh, forefathers had experienced British participation in the transatlantic slave trade anyway. But the prominent Africans who were making allusions and comparisons between Nazism and slavery, Nazism and colonialism, Nazism and racism, were actually the educated elites who could read these newspapers and who could also uh, read some of the uh, news bulletins from the BBC and then others. And your question is very, very important because it raises a question that you may possibly ask me. Are there any other potential areas for research? Mm -hmm. And those potential areas for research will be how far down the colonies did these comparisons between Nazism and racism, Nazism and colonialism go? Or are these comparisons 
predominantly elite obsession in urban areas. That certainly will be a researchable uh, issue. So the Africans who were making this, particularly in West Africa, those that I have mentioned. But of course, in East Africa, there were also uh, others. I mean, the editors of the Uganda Herald, who were mainly Indian immigrants. Uh, and there were, of course, you know, other Africans uh, there as well. The editors of the Ethiopian Herald, too, had made similar comparisons. So in these two regions, the agents of these comparisons were actually educated elites. The question that remains to be addressed is, was it a general African sentiment? Uh, that one I do not know because those are some of the silences in the historical records. But how far down rural areas Ordinary people who were also reading about the Holocaust in local languages. How far down these kinds of comparisons uh, seeped and the degree to which similar comparisons were made uh, by rural people. Uh, that remains, in my view, to be explored at a later date. In what ways is African memory of the Holocaust changing in the 2020s? What have been the primary new developments and new trends? Hmm, this is interesting. I think there have been some significant changes and changes that worry me deeply as the author of this book that we are discussing. In the 1930s and the early 1940s, it appears that educated Africans saw some kind of kinship between themselves and European Jews, or Jews generally. Educated Africans in the regions that I have studied saw similarities between African history and Jewish history. And those similarities verge on the history of persecution. That if there are two people who had borne the brunt of prejudice and discrimination, these two people are Jews and Africans. Educated Africans realize that. They wrote about that in their editorial columns. And it is this sense of kinship that drew them towards trying to understand what was happening to Jews in Europe as a possible way of contemplating their own fate in the event of a Nazi victory in World War II, which they anticipated. They anticipated that victory in the early years of the war. And so that bond of kinship forged in the memory of persecution, made people in Africa, at least at the intellectual level, if not in the practical accommodation level, come to have some sense of solidarity with Jews. In fact, Namdi Azikiwe wrote in his Inside Stuff column on 10th January 1939, I think, about the need for educated Africans to be sensitive to the plight of Jews and how any failure on the part of Africans to have some solidarity with Jews would represent a moral failure 
on the part of Africans. He wrote in that inside stuff, and the title of that topic was anti-Semitism. And in that kind of column on anti-Semitism, he discussed the many contributions the Jews had made to human civilization as a way of criticizing the contents of Mein Kampf that suggested that the only creative forces in world history are white Aryans. And Namdi Azikiwe debunked that by spelling out the many contributions the Jews had made in human history that other humans have also appropriated and expanded to make human society better. But this interest in Jewish life, this sensitivity to the humanity of Jews that existed in the 1940s and 1930s, that seemed to be declining today in many parts of Africa. And you mentioned 2020. It even dates back to the 1967 war. And many African intellectuals, of course, the position of the Organization of African Unity in 1967 was pro-Palestinian and pro-PLO. And today, the politics of the Middle East, that is certainly not the suggestion, that is not the topic of conversation today, mm -hmm. because it is not the centerpiece of my work. Mm -hmm. But the politics of the Middle East and the majority of Africans' solidarity with the Palestinians have actually changed to some extent. These pro-Jewish and philosemitic attitudes and solidarity with Jews that I document in Africans and the Holocaust. And perhaps that is also one subject that needs to be discussed. That is, what was the turning point? What changed in African-Jewish relations between the philosemitic sentiments and African-Jewish solidarities that Edward Kisi writes about in Africans and the Holocaust and African-Jewish relations in the, in the 2020s or African-Jewish relations post-1967. That will be a very interesting topic to discuss. What would you like your audience, whether it's our listeners in regard to this interview or your readers in regard to this book, to learn and absorb and internalize about the interaction between anti-Semitism and anti-Blackness. Hmm. They belong to the same spectrum or they exist in the same spectrum of prejudice. Anti-Semitism is a form of prejudice. Anti-Blackness is a form of prejudice. Uh, to the extent that the Nazi regime made a religious community into a race, racialized Jews, uh, would seem to suggest that deeply embedded in prejudice is a certain sentiment against groups of people who are otherized, made the other, marginalized, positioned at the margins of what people assume to be the ideal identity. So the message that I want my book to convey 
is that we should see anti-Semitism and anti-Blackness as two sides of the same coin. And it's very interesting that this particular question that you asked followed immediately after my discussion about the transitions that have occurred between African-Jewish relations in the 1930s and what I see post-1967. In the sense that those of us who come from Africa, myself included, and people who read my book to see the excellent analyses that African journalists and intellectuals made about the Holocaust, using anti-Semitism and anti-Blackness as lenses, prisms, through which to discuss the challenges of civilization, humanity, human morality, and Christianity. That same excellent analysis should be made today about how we make common cause with oppressed people. My book is about how oppressed people in Africa reacted to oppression beyond their borders. They had suffered anti-Black prejudices in their colonial societies. And they were reading about anti-Semitic prejudices in the heart of Europe. The very continent from which people had come to Africa to claim that they were bringing them civilization. And so um, the larger lessons is that we must make every effort we can to stamp out anti-Semitism and anti-Blackness from our modern society. And perhaps Africans and Jews who have borne the brunt of these dual prejudices should champion this global moral effort in the preservation of human rights. What does your book teach us about silence? That it is a bad idea that it tarnishes the acquiescent. We are silent when we acquiesce to something that is diabolical that could potentially affect us too. We participate in the commission of evil. Readers will read from my book, Africans and the Holocaust, the deep concerns that the African educated elite who were writing about the Holocaust expressed about the silence of Christian nations, about the anti-Christian deeds of the Nazi state. They were worried about why only a few Christian voices were defending the humanity of Jews. In 1942, 1943, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. William Temple, speaking out loudly and boldly against what was happening in Germany and entreating the British government and all people of conscience to open their arms and their lands to accept as many refugees as they can possibly accommodate. Well, of course, somebody spoke up that that was one, two, Pastor Berner, Protestant pastor in France too. And of course, others that we have come to know spoke out. But silence from the majority of European clergy and silence from the majority of Christian nations worried African observers of the Holocaust immensely. And if there is a lesson that my book teaches, and there are many that it teaches, 
It is that silence troubles the soul. It tarnishes those who acquiesce to evil. And when you have loud voices that oppose evil, it creates a chorus of concern and it allows even the ambivalent and the fearful to join a righteous chorus against evil. The book is very, very clear about the dilemmas and contradictions of evil, particularly contradictions of silence, particularly how Christian countries became silent in the face of the Holocaust. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you kindly tell us about the work you've been doing since completing this book? Where has your attention gone since completing this book? Can you tell us about your current project? Yes, uh, there are two in the pipeline. Uh, the first is a co-edited book that I'm working on with a nationally renowned Holocaust historian, Norman Goddard, at the University of Florida, you know, very close to where I am. Uh, Norman Goddard and I convened a conference recently on universalizing the Holocaust. And we are trying to find out how and why the Holocaust has become a universal issue onto which many have latched and associated a variety of things. How the Holocaust has become the context and framework from which people understand extraordinary evil, silence, memory, genocide, atrocity, solidarity, empathy. And so we are working on a book that we hope will come out in 2024, and um, we have brought together um, some very accomplished, a number of very accomplished scholars drawn from all over the globe to actually look at the universalization of the Holocaust and then also the instrumental applications of the Holocaust today. And this entire conversation about my book has actually focused on how people in Africa universalize the Holocaust or discuss the Holocaust contemporaneously. That is just at the time when it was taking place. My book is about how Africans received information, Africans in West and East Africa received information about the Holocaust and how they interpreted that information and how they related that information to their own experiences and culture from 1933 to 1945. So that is a contemporaneous perspective. This book that I'm working on with Norman Goddard will go beyond the contemporaneous observations to other contemporary present-day interpretations and, and interpretations and applications of the Holocaust. So that is one. The other book that I even mentioned in the in the research that I mentioned in the, in the introduction of my book that I am working on um, incrementally because my attention now is focused on this co-edited book. It's a book that I have tentatively titled Africans and the Legacies of Nuremberg. I 
I'm interested in looking, now that I have looked at how Africans viewed the Holocaust, I want to look at how Africans viewed the Nuremberg trials as an outcome of the Holocaust. And that will be a very interesting sequel to my book. How did Africans, how did people in Africa, and particularly Ethiopia, view the Nuremberg trials? How the trial was conceived, how it was conducted, and then why the crimes of Italy were not included in the Nuremberg judicial process. And then also the legacies of the Nuremberg process in terms of how the outcomes of the Nuremberg judicial process, particularly the one that took place in Nuremberg itself, how the legacies have been applied in the application of human rights laws and then also uh, reconciliation movements in post-conflict societies. So that will look at not only how Africans viewed and interpreted the, the Nuremberg trials, but how they have also applied the legacies of the Nuremberg in their own legal histories. And since I did not include Central Africa, which is another area to be examined within the context of Africa and the Holocaust or Africans and the Holocaust. In my Africa and the legacies of Nuremberg, I would want to look at East Africa, Central Africa and West Africa within the context of African perceptions and applications of the Nuremberg trials and the Nuremberg legacies. That sounds like an absolutely necessary project and I can hardly thank you enough for undertaking it and preparing it and for undergoing the sacrifices necessary to bring it to fruition for the benefit of all of us. Thank you also for giving me this opportunity to talk to you uh, and to bring uh, the contents of my book to a larger listening public. Thank you. It was my blessing and my honor. It takes a truly noble and truly righteous person to devote the time to such a necessary and imperative topic. Thank you very much. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am your host on the New Books in African Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today I've been in dialogue with Dr. Edward Kesey. He is Associate Professor in the Department of Africana Studies in the School of Interdisciplinary Global Studies at the University of South Florida, Tampa campus. We have been discussing his book, Africans and the Holocaust, Perceptions and Responses of Colonized and Sovereign Peoples, published in New York by Routledge 2020. Thank you for your time. This was my hallowed honor.